this weekend around the United States of America, people will celebrate life. This Sunday is National Sanctity of Life Sunday, where people are asked by the President of the United States and have been for some time now, every year, asked by the President of the United States to offer prayers in consideration of those who are yet to be born, that they be protected, that they be cared for, that the women who bear them be protected and cared for, and that we seek to move together to speak over our entire culture a word that we are for life. And I think that is crucial for us to remember. That we at Grace Fellowship are not anti-abortion. That's approaching the issue from the wrong perspective. We are for life. Not just before a child is born, but after the child is born. And when the child goes through developmental stages and matures and grows as an individual. And as they enter their dying years, Senior citizenship is is known in our world. Elder life, as the Bible would call it. We celebrate life then too. And the significance and the importance of, of every life, whether that life is conceived merely ours, or whether that life is existed now on this earth 85 or 90 years. We are a culture, as Grace Fellowship, a community that believes passionately about life. And we, we seek to honor and to, to um, intensify and to bring to fulfillment all that God desires for each life in our community, the community of this county, in this state, in this nation, in this, in this world. We are pro-life. We are for life. That is, please change your vocabulary. We are too often cast as people against, 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 against. And the world cries out, what are you for? What do you believe in? So let's let them know what we believe. Let's live what we believe. What our convictions are should come out into our daily life. The way we talk, the way we live, the way we prioritize, the things we give credence to, the things we watch, the things we listen to, the people we respect as our leaders. All of it should point towards life. Today, I'm breaking and departing from normal procedure here. Not only is it not normally this cold in our sanctuary, um, we... uh, we also normally are in the middle of a book somewhere in the Bible, preaching from beginning to end of that book. And right now I have two book series going from two different parts of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. 
John was a series that began in uh, November of 2007. And uh, don't get scared. We haven't been there all the time since 2007. We've been bouncing from uh, place to place as time and, and as the Lord leads. But that kind of is an overarching series that's been going now for some time. And we're in chapter 11, just finished, and beginning chapter 12 in the future of this year at some point, God willing. We also are in Hosea, and that, that series began just a few weeks ago here at Grace Fellowship. And so we're in uh, Hosea, just finished Hosea chapter 4, moving into Hosea chapter 5, walking through the book of Hosea, the message God delivered to his people of all time from the prophet. And so today we break from both of those series to handle the individual one, one-time-only message. It stands by itself. And the title of the message is, and I, I have notes today on, on the screen for you, Pro-Life is Loving Your Neighbor. Pro-Life is Loving Your Neighbor. Now, let me give you my method. I still will be expositing the Scripture today. What I tend to do is, uh, or what I hope to do, is to f- fulfill the obligation of this text. What is Jesus saying in this text? And then I want to talk about how it applies specifically at the end to sanctity of life. Okay? So we're going to look at what the text means first. And that, that's what we should do. And then how does that particularly apply in one segment or one issue of our, of our lives? All right? So you've had the text read. I think that we would also do uh, diligence if we talked about for a moment what is the issue of, of our day. You know, often in our mode of thinking, 1973 with the Roe versus Wade decision uh, is kind of marked as the beginning of abortion. Unfortunately for younger generations, especially education, is not very good at telling us that abortion has been around really as long as the world has existed. This is not a new concept. The ancient cultures practiced abortion rudimentary practices of abortion, and we won't get into them. They're, they're, they're very graphic and detailed and would turn your stomach. But just suffice it to say, you can research for yourself if you have a hankering to do that. The ancient cultures, um, as far back as recorded record, we have recorded record, have had this, this action among their societies. So it's not new. It didn't start in 1973. Uh, it wasn't invented here in the United States. It's not even fair to say that it began in 1973 in the United States. Abortion, again, has been a part of society in the United States from the founding, from the very beginning. And it was, um, it was brought to, lie, to, the, to the forefront by a movement began by Margaret Higgins Sanger. And Margaret Sanger... Uh, was born in 1879, so you get a feel for how old this is. Although I read a New York Times from 1858 that was decrying the level of abortion in the city limits of New York in 1858. So it didn't start in 1973, as some wrongly believe. Sanger, um, in her uh, call for really what she termed as family um, conditioning or family planning, which 
became a popular term in her day, popularized by her, started her first clinic in October, on October 16, 1916. She started in New York. And the purpose was to, one, train the ignorant as to the cause of their pregnancies. She has a real high view of mankind, doesn't she? How intelligent we are. Secondly, to offer contraceptive measures for those who so chose to have them. And then finally, to encourage the poor and ignorant to not reproduce further burdens on our society. And her mode and method was abortion. Though, to give her credit, uh, where what little credit we can, she did think that abortion was not the best option. She did not believe it was the best option. We could talk a lot about what all she did. She started the American Birth Control League in 1921. She was put in prison or in jail several times. She wrote a book called What Every Girl Should Know to try to educate. Again, one of her major platforms was to educate women as to the cause and uh, the ills of being pregnant. And, and so she did a lot of things. And I don't want to uh, stereotype her. I would rather let her speak a little in the introduction to this message so we kind of get a flavor of the culture of death, the idea that it is better to be rid of some people rather than to care for them and love them and nourish them to their full potential. Her thoughts on human development were, were laden with racism. Listen to what she says. It is said that a fish as large as a man has a brain no larger than the kernel of an almond. In all fish and reptiles where there is no great brain development, there is also no conscious sexual control. The lower down in the scale of human development we go, the less sexual control we find. It is said, get this, hear what she's saying. It is said that the aboriginal Australian, the lowest known species of the human family, just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development, has so little sex control that police authority alone prevents him from obtaining sexual, sexual satisfying on the streets. This was uh, Miss Sanger's view of humanity. That the aborigine in Australia is the lowest form of all humankind. And that we progress up the scale as we go through the people groups. I bet you don't know who was at the top of her pyramid. White Caucasians. Racism. Racism as pure and as undefiled as you will find it. This was the motivating factor for her both her birth control and her abortion movement. Her first pamphlet that she put out read like this. It is a vicious, vicious cycle. Ignorance breeds poverty and poverty breeds ignorance. There is only one cure for both. And that is to stop breeding these things. Stop bringing to birth children whose inheritance cannot be one of health or intelligence. Stop bringing into the world children whose parents cannot provide for them. Herein lies the key of civilization. For upon the foundation of an enlightened and voluntary motherhood shall a future civilization 
emerge. It's amazing how Miss Sanger believed the more enlightened you became, the less you respected life. When in every primitive culture in the world, children are esteemed. Even in their offering to the gods, children are... If you talk, in other words, if you talk to a tribal member who offered children to the gods... His reasoning would not be that that child is less valuable. His reasoning would be that child is very valuable. Now that's twisted for us in a civilized world. But he would not be saying we kill the least among us. He would be saying we offer the best among us to the gods that we might be appeased. That he might be appeased. So in her mind, the more civilized, the more educated you become, the less respect you should have for uh, life. The undeniable, feeble-minded should indeed not only be discouraged, but prevented from propagating their kind. So the closing sentence. In 1957, before her death in 66, she was named by the humanist the humanist of the year. Her legacy is Planned Parenthood, Roe versus Wade, the legalization of abortion in the United States. And 45 plus million dead babies. You see, you must be careful the causes you promote. Because long after you're dead, those causes will live. You must be careful in this life what you sign your name to. Because long after you're gone, what you believed in will live. And what we have... In today's message is a contrast of God and humanism. God and the, and the belief that He is supreme and therefore ultimately determines the destination of every human being on the face of the earth. And humanism, which says we humans are the top of the food chain. Therefore, we determine our future and we determine the future of our kind and we determine Ultimately, the future for the created order. You see, I want to move us from this skirmish, though it is a big and passionate skirmish which we have over abortion rights in this country, to the real skirmish which is occurring in our society, which is God, those who profess and hold to a biblical view of who God is, therefore they understand who man is, and on the other side, those who profess a high view of man and the belief that there is no God, or if there is a God, He has long since left this world to our management. I want to cast this thing as it is. It is a struggle between those who believe in a biblical God and those who believe in humans as God. Now, 
we need to understand this passage, I believe, to better appropriate our time and our energy in the area of pro-life. Pro-life is loving your neighbor, and I hope to make that point. First thing we see in the passage is some background here that Jesus was approached, first of all, by the Sadducees over the idea of paying their taxes and over the idea of the resurrection. They were coming to him to try. They were lawyers by trade, and as any good lawyer does, he tries to confuse and tangle those who are on the other side of the argument to show the fallacy of their argument and then further prove his point. Okay, The Sadducees go about it talking about taxes. Should or should we not pay our taxes? Much to your dismay, maybe, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Okay? And so we should all be about that. And then secondly, he says in this passage, the Sadducees do, they approach him about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they give him this case scenario about a woman who married a brother. They had no children. The brother dies. So she then is redeemed by the second brother. And then that brother dies and the wife dies. And so in the eternity, who will she be married to? They think they've got him. God is not a polygamist. So who is it that this woman will be I'm married to in eternity. And Jesus answers their question. There'll be no marriage in heaven. And so the crowd heard it and they were astonished at his teaching. They were captivated by Jesus Christ and his authority and his power. And then we come to verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, I get the picture, they dropped their head, they're frustrated, but he got them. They, they didn't have any defense to offer back to his points of view. The Pharisees saw this, they're probably happy because see, they believe in the resurrection. They also were statesmen. They believed in paying their taxes. <laughs> and so both of these points are great that Jesus has identified himself as a pro-tax and pro-resurrection uh, member of society. They're happy about that. But they're also seeking to trip him up. So they kind of tell the Sadducees, you know, hey, y'all go sit down over there, you rookie-minded people. Let us show you how this is really done. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You see, the Pharisees loved the law. They loved it so much, they expanded it. From 10, and then it was, of course, explained in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we get a, a body of laws, both civil and ceremonial and moral, given from God in the Old Testament. But on top of that, these guys made 630 at least Laws. They love the law. It's not out of line for them to be asking, what's the greatest of the laws? What's the greatest of the commandments? They're going to trip Jesus up. They're going to catch him. They're going to confuse him. They're going to tangle him. Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And a, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all of the prophets and the law hang or depend. And so, what is it that Jesus is really saying? Because He did refute the Pharisees. He did confound them. They go away just as confounded, just as confused, just as defeated as the Sadducees. What is it He's really saying? That's what we want to understand. We must love God, this is the first point, with all that we have and all that we are as His children. We must love God with all that we have and all that we are as His children. The first thing Jesus tells them is this is the greatest commandment. The love of God is our purpose for life. If you take your Bible and turn back to Genesis, you find that God created the heavens and the earth, all of the animals that are in the ocean, that are on the land, that are in the air, all of the spirit beings, all of the physical beings. He created everything. He came to the end of His creation. And on the, on the sixth day, He created man. The highest of all of His creation. Why is man the highest of his, all of his creation? Well, because he's given the image of God. A part of creation which has not been done before. Nor is it repeated after. There's no other creation. Man is in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? We could spend an entire message series on the image of God. Let me just give you a small form of it. And if you have some questions, we could talk about it. I believe that the image of God is most... Uh, fully understood as the ability to relate with God in a personal relationship. In other words, there's an interchange between God and man that occurs. It doesn't occur between Him and the angels, and it does not occur between Him and the other created animals. Man is not an animal. Man is in the image of God. We've got to understand that. If we're going to be a true culture of life at Grace Fellowship, we've got to believe man is just not the highest order of animal. Not as if you get to the chimpanzee and then you get the aborigine in Australia. That's not it. Those two things, the chimpanzee and the aborigine in Australia, are not, decide, are not divided by a mere baby step they are totally distinct in their creation. If we don't believe that, then we would do better to buy into the humanist philosophies. It's just as blasphemous. Okay? Man is totally different than anything before. And in his creation, his highest, his highest uh, purpose was to relate with God. And we see that take place in the garden, don't we? Immediately. God begins to come every day, walk with Adam, and they had a conversation. They had relationship. He doesn't walk with chimpanzees. He doesn't walk with elephants. He doesn't walk with any other type of animal. He works and walks with mankind. It's a beautiful relationship. The love of God is our purpose for this life. So therefore, it's easy to understand why so many people are frustrated in our world, isn't it? 
if your greatest purpose in life is to love God and you aren't fulfilling that purpose, everything else you do is meaningless. It it might have some temporary meaning, but when you lay your head down at night, you feel frustrated and you feel meaningless. The love of God, if it means anything, it's our deepest purpose. The love of God is commanded by God. Not only is it instinctively written on every person's heart, That there is a God and that we are to love Him. That is from the very beginning in creation. But God has commanded that we love Him. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, God says through Moses to the people of Israel and to us, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. He commands it. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. Do you see that in your text? That's what I see in my text is a quotation. There are no quotation marks. But if you go through the New Testament, on every page there is Old Testament Scripture. Brought over into the New, stated again, reaffirmed. This is God's Word to us from Genesis to Revelation. Is the statement of Jesus and the Apostles. All of the Scripture was written... By the way, Paul said that about the Old Testament. For what? All Scripture is God-breathed and given for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. That's an Old Testament that he's talking about. Jesus says, Deuteronomy 6, 5 is still true, Pharisee. You've got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And so the love of God is our deepest purpose and we see it in our creation. The love of God is also commanded by God. The love of God is the only soul-satisfying action in all of life. You will not be satisfied as a human, as a person, until you love God. You will not be ultimately satisfied. You will have to bank your satisfaction in life on momentary events that occur and then pass away. And when they pass away, the satisfaction they bring goes with it. Can I give you an example that maybe we can all relate with? When you got your first car, I don't care if it was a beater that had dings in it and the paint was rusting off. The vinyl covers to your seat were frayed and ripping. Right? It doesn't matter, does it? When you got that car, it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. You drove that baby around town. You washed the rust. You put seat covers on the seats. You were happy. You felt satisfied. For how long? For how long? I mean, if it was an old car, it kind of wears off fast, doesn't it? You pull up in the school parking lot in the beginning of school and you're so happy about your new ride you got over the summer and your buddy rolls up next to you in a brand new car and you say, I'm so embarrassed. You get out and they say, hey, did you get that over the holiday? Yeah. Satisfaction. Gone. Right? Maybe it's not just physical things that satisfy us. Maybe we need human relationships. Please understand what I'm about to say. 
Okay? I know you all still love your husband or your wife. But let's be honest. Those ooey gooey, all satisfying feelings you had the first time y'all went on a date, if you've been together long enough, they're not there anymore, are they? You still love them. As a matter of fact, you love them more now than you did then. Right? I mean, let's be honest. In our definition of love, we need to understand what love is. Amy and I were watching a show last night, and it was saying that love is not about decision. It's only about feeling. If that's your definition of love, it goes away in the puppy dog stage, and you're stuck because you can't get that back. It's gone. Right? I mean, when you got that first girlfriend or that first boyfriend that was hot to try You brought her in the schoolhouse on your arm, opened the door. You were the man. Right? You pitied everybody else in school. You wanted to show her off. That was your beautiful, all-satisfying love. For a month? Till your first fight? How long? If it lasted five years and you're not to that point yet, you say, I ain't gone away yet. It's going. And if you get married, (laughs) there's a man that's been married less than a year. He's already amening. Which shows two things. One, it goes away. The other, he'll get smarter as he gets older. (laughs) Hey. Let's just be honest. Cars don't satisfy ultimately, and our husband or our wife do not satisfy ultimately. And children, as beautiful and as much as we love them, do not satisfy us forever. There's only one thing, one being, who is intended to fill the void in your life forever. His name is Yahweh. God. There is none like Him. You will not be ultimately satisfied. You will not find the fulfillment of your purpose. You cannot, you cannot find satisfaction without Him. Jesus goes into categories. All of your heart, and I take that to mean in the, in the center of who you are, He must satisfy everything, every desire, every hope, every dream in your soul. The very meaning, I go back to purpose. I think he's talking about purpose. Your heart, the center of who you are, all your satisfaction. Your soul, the very meaning of you as a person. Your mind. God redeems that man or woman that he saves and changes their mind so that he is the full and, and, and ever-expanding knowledge for them. Everything they learn now is different. I can test if you're a, ge- if you're a geometry uh, teacher or if you're a divine teaching theology in the seminary. God, the existence of God in your life, the fact that you know Him as your Savior, changes the way you view whatever you believe and whatever you do. It changes you. It changes you. Jesus said it would. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Secondly, he says, 
we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Love of neighbor displays a love of God. I want you to hold your place here in Matthew 22, and I want you to turn quickly to Matthew 7 and see Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus is, is coming to the end of the sermon, and he's just talked about prayer, asking and it will be given, and all, all of these teachings. And he comes to what we call the golden rule, and look at what he says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Hold your place and turn to Romans chapter 13. And I'm, I'm wanting you to see these two statements because I think they're the same but yet different than what Jesus says in our passage in Matthew 22. Paul, coming to the very practical outworking of his theology, says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the, for the one who loves, this is verse 8, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so we have these two statements, Matthew 7, verse 12, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, that say that the fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor. And then we look at Matthew 22, and Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And we say, wait a minute. Where is that commandment in chapter 7 in Matthew and in Romans 13? Why is it not mentioned? I think for two reasons. First of all, loving the neighbor is, notice, the fulfilling of the law. That's not what Matthew 22 says about the two commandments, the two greatest commandments. What does it say? And we're going to get there in verse 40. All of the law and prophets depend on these two. Okay? And I'm going to distinguish those in my last point of this message. Okay? But first of all, the same word is not used. In Matthew 7 and in Romans 13, the idea is that this is how you fulfill the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We might say this is the human flesh and activity which proves that you love God. Therefore, my point says loving the neighbor displays your love for God. You cannot love your neighbor the way Jesus is saying to love your neighbor unless you love God. We might say it that way. Now you're understanding a little more about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22. You cannot do the second commandment except for you obey the first commandment. You and I don't possess this kind of love. And that's the second thing I want to say about loving your neighbor as yourself. Love of neighbor is a radical command. Jesus is just not giving us common knowledge. He's telling us and explaining to us something which has been in the law from the beginning but has not been fully understood. The Pharisees did not understand this part of the law. They did not understand it. They never mastered the fact that what God was talking about was the heart. They exemplified their lack of love for their neighbor. Regularly. 
By not caring for their mothers and their fathers in their aged years. By not loving Gentiles. They hated Gentiles so much they wouldn't even touch an article of clothing, a seat, or a, a dish which a Gentile had touched. They hated Gentiles. They would not, in, in showing that they don't love their neighbor, they would not even love Jews who they viewed to be in violation of the law. They didn't love them. They simply condemned them and kicked them out. They didn't fulfill the second commandment because they couldn't do it. You can't either, and I can't. We cannot love our neighbor radically the way Jesus calls us to love them unless we first love God the way He commanded. Loving the neighbor is a radical command in verse 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what makes it radical is that he didn't just say love your neighbor. If he said that, everybody could do it. But he didn't just say that. He said love your neighbor. What? As yourself. Jesus admits in this statement that God created every one of you to love yourself. If you tell me in, in some act of trying to show yourself humble that you don't love yourself, you're lying. Jesus says, you and I love ourselves. That's how we're made. We're made that way not because of sin, though that enhances and changes the love of self. We're made that way because God in the beginning made Adam that way. Notice the first thing we see about Adam is he's looking to find fulfillment. Why? Because he wants to satisfy his inner desires. And where does he find the answer? In God. We were created to love ourselves because our ultimate purpose is to love God. Therefore, God knew you can't love yourself unless you run hard after me. Originally, that part of us which wants to satisfy self-desire was intended to be focused towards God. The fall radically changed that. Now, in our perverted state, in our fallen state, in our sinful state, we no longer run hard after God. We run hard after finding fulfillment in anything which makes us happy, even for the moment. The fall has changed it. But we're all created to love ourselves, And Jesus says as much in this commandment. You love yourself. Now I want you to think with me. How much do you love yourself? There's never been a day that you didn't seek to have your basic needs met. The first hours of being born and in this world physically are filled with what? Crying. Why does the baby cry? Not just to annoy everybody. That baby's crying because it's cold. Because it's scared. Because it doesn't like light, maybe. Because it doesn't have food now. And vocal cord's gone. That needs something to eat. It's feeling things it's never felt. It's upset. When does the baby stop crying? When it's held. When it's soothed. When it's comforted with warm blankets and clothes. And when it's given its mother's milk. And the baby drifts off into sleep. 
only to wake up in three hours or less doing what? Demanding its rights. The baby loves itself. You love yourself. I love myself. And Jesus says, this is the radical part. Love the person sitting next to you as you love yourself. You mean, Jesus, I'm supposed to seek for the poor to have food as hard as and as much as I seek to fill my own belly? Jesus says, yes. You mean when it's cold outside and I seek warm shelter, I should be seeking warm shelter for those who don't have it? Absolutely. You mean that when somebody's being treated unjustly, I should stand and raise my voice and use my physical abilities and my mental abilities and my spiritual call to loosen the chains of their oppression? Yes! Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law depends, and the prophets, on loving God and loving your neighbor. All of it. What? John Piper helped me understand the difference between depend and fulfilling better than anybody. And that's what I want to tell you now. The third point is that we are commanded to love our neighbor and ourself because all of the law depends on these things. It hangs on these things. What does that mean? It's different than fulfilling. Remember, fulfilling, loving your neighbor as yourself, is the physical flesh that shows people we love God. Okay? That's fulfilling. So the lost world looks and says they really do love God because they love each other and they love others. That's fulfilling. Depending. Hanging. What does it mean? John Piper gives this picture, this illustration, and I'm just stealing it, okay? It's not mine. He says if all of the Word of God was spread across the sky as a parchment scroll, And you looked up at it. And then you realize that the fulfilling of that law is the action of the people under the scroll. This is their authority, in other words, in the illustration. Doing what the scroll says. So that people can look at the scroll and say, you shall not commit adultery. And they look down here and say, oh, those people don't commit adultery. That's fulfilling the law. That's... Matthew 7, 12, Romans 13, 8 through 10. What is Matthew 22 then? Matthew 22, verse 40, is getting above the parchment scroll in the heavenly view. And when you get above the scroll, you see a chain, a golden chain connected at this end and that end of the scroll, holding it up. And you follow it into heaven. And as you crest heaven's door, you see that those golden chains attach to the right and left arm of the throne of God with these two statements. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. These two chains suspend the law of God over us as an authority so that we might do it, put flesh on it. 
What Jesus is saying is, he's not giving a command, go fulfill. He assumes you will. He's saying all of the Old Testament and the New Testament holds together on these two things. It's suspended by it. It is the basis for it. It is the foundation of it. Be careful in this life what cause you give yourself to because long after you're dead, the cause which you support will survive. Margaret Sanger gave her life to what she believed to be a good cause, limiting the burden of the world, which is caused by poor and unintelligent people reproducing. And her legacy is 45 million, at least in the United States, deaths by abortion. She didn't kill one baby, but she's responsible for all of them, in my mind, at least part. She gave her life to that cause. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, gave His life to the cause that we might know and understand what the law and prophets suspend from. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus' life is summed up in these two statements, isn't it? This is what He gave His life for. This is what He died for so that others might give their life to this cause. And long after His death, 2,000 years after His death, the church is now spread across every continent of the world. Going to each people group, changing, radically bringing life and eternal change and destiny for people. Be careful what you give your life to. What causes you take up, they'll survive longer than you. Now how does this, I take it that you understand this text. Maybe you don't. If you don't, I apologize. Maybe I can help you later. But how in the world do we apply this to sanctity of life? Well, I've just put together seven application statements. First application that I see from our text is we love our neighbor by loving unborn children. Unborn children are our neighbors. We can't see them. We can't hear them. But they are our neighbors. By the definition given to neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they are the most rightly understood to be our neighbor. Because in the parable, Jesus says, those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who are being taken advantage of against their ability to protect themselves, are your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. And I would say unborn children are the most vulnerable in our society. I'll tell you how I know that's the case. When a mother is shown an ultrasound of her child, you know what the percentage of abortion after that is? 10%. 90% of women who said, I'm going to have an abortion, 
went into a crisis pregnancy center or their local doctor and saw an ultrasound of that baby with the heart beating and all those things you saw on the video, left the office saying, I can't do it. They are the most helpless in our society. They have no voice. We cannot see them. And when we see them, we see them as defenseless. Even those who are under pressure to abort them see them as defenseless and run to protect them. And so as a church, we should be loving our unborn neighbors. How do we love them, Carlton? I'm glad you asked me. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for those who are having children among us. Rebecca Atchison right now is carrying a life. And I'm telling you, we as a church ought to be praying for that child every day that God protects it. God, bring this baby to fruition. Let it be born. And let it fulfill its purpose in life. We should be praying for that child right now. Right now. Pray, not only for those we know, but those we don't know. Beg God to protect them. How can we love our unborn neighbors? We can love our unborn neighbors by being a part of organizations like Save a Life, which we are a part of that as a church. And I'm encouraging you, ladies, for two years now, Save a Life has asked for volunteers, for counselors. Men cannot volunteer for this role. Women have to come volunteer. And what you do is one of many things. You might just answer the phone. They need people just to answer the phone. You don't have to do any counseling, in other words. You just answer the phone, take a message, get the message to an appropriate person in the office, and they take care of the rest. All the way to the point which you are counseling young women. What I'm saying is there's a role for you. Our church supports them every year from our budget. We will continue to do that. We support them in practical ways, like helping them move from one office to the next, which we did this year. But I'm asking you ladies who can, please take time out of your week, out of your month, at whatever frequency you can give and give to this cause. It is making a big difference in our society. It is bringing life into fulfillment, even as we speak. It's loving your unborn neighbor. You can pray for them. You can support Save a Life. You can financially give to this budget of this church because we give to Save a Life. There's a lot of ways to love your neighbor. I've just named a few. Love your neighbor, and loving your neighbor is loving the unborn neighbor. Second application is love. We love our neighbor by loving the orphan children. Eric was right to mention this because one of the things that the world will say is the church is all about babies before they're born, but once the baby's born, they care nothing about those children. And that's not totally true, but it is true in some cases. And we better confess it and repent of it. Okay? Far be it from us to tell people to have children and do nothing to help them once they've had them. That's not loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor means loving the orphan children of the world. 210 million orphan children, according to UNICEF's latest figures. 
Only 13 million of these children, or a little over, are actually in an orphanage. The rest of them live in third world countries on the streets. Rod has been to Brazil. He has seen it firsthand. Orphan children in this country are at a disadvantage, a great disadvantage, and they should be loved and nurtured and brought into homes. And that's happened in our church this year. By the grace of God, one baby has been brought into a home among us. And the mother was loved and cared for by that family. And we have gotten the benefit of seeing that baby here among us. That's loving your neighbor, the orphan. Loving your neighbor, the orphan, might be Loving those who are in orphanages in other countries. Because the children orphaned in this country are at a disadvantage. Children orphaned in other countries are at an extreme disadvantage. Children in this country at least get Medicaid assistance, most of them. Are given public education for the most part. There are programs to help them. Foster care and others. In the world at large, those programs do not exist for the most part. And loving, and the way that those orphans are cared for at best is put into a home with 200 other children starving to death. With the future of being turned onto the streets at the age of 16. With no parental care and no guidance. It's happening by the thousands around our world. And... That's the best situation for a child that's orphaned around the world because the rest of them are living on the street right now at four and five years old trying to scrounge for something to fill their bellies at night and stay warm. That's the case of the orphan that we in America have no idea about because we live in our consumer-driven, capitalistic, fairy tale world where all of our needs are met every day. And we pass bums on the street and say, bless their heart, they don't want a job. They ought to go to work. We are hardened to the case of the orphan. And you may say, well, well that's your burden, but it's not mine. It better be. God says Himself, I am the Father of the fatherless. And in the law, He provided for orphan care in the law. And He said, Israel, you better take orphans in and you better love them. And James, in verse 27 of chapter 1, says, Pure and undefiled religion is simply loving widows and orphans. You can't sit there and say, Oh, I'm a Christian, but I have no concern for children that are orphaned in the world. I don't know if you're a Christian or not, but if you have no care or concern for orphans, you might ought to recheck where you stand with Christ. As in Matthew 25, he says, the equivalent of this, I'm paraphrasing, if you don't love the least among you, you don't love me. Loving our neighbor is loving the unborn. It's also loving the orphan. 210 million of them. 15 million in orphanages around the world. About a half a million orphaned in this country in foster care and other places. You can be a part by giving to Micah's hope. 
Adoption Fund at Grace Fellowship. Micah's hope exists to bring orphans home. By God's grace, we've been able to do that three times this year for four children. Two uh, that were brother and sister in the, in the uh, Ukraine. One from China who's on her way home right now on the airplane. And you did it. You did it. That child has a Christian mother and father because of you. Grace Fellowship. Because you were loving your neighbor. And in February, Amy and I will get on a plane and fly to a province, Shanxi, in the People's Republic of China, and receive our daughter because of you. Because you loved her. Because you cared enough. Because you made a difference. Loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is loving unborn children, is loving the orphan children in this country and around the world. We love our neighbor by loving mothers who face the decision to abort or not abort their children. For too long the church has looked on unwed motherhood and rightly said that's not right. It shouldn't be that way, but we've wrongly disenfranchised those mothers. And when what we should be saying is, what happened is not good, but oh, a lot of good can come from it. A lot of good can come from it. And we should be reaching to those women and bringing them among ourselves and taking them into our homes and helping them get education and providing for their medical care and bringing those children to life, whether they're kept by that mother or adopted, we can make that, help them make that decision and, and give them a resources to make that decision. But I'm telling you, part of the problem with abortion in this country is that women are thrown to the side once they're pregnant and told that's their only option. And we need to be offering viable, real alternatives to, them, to abortion and screaming from the mountaintop, we love you as we love ourselves. And we love your child as we love our own children. That's the fulfillment of loving your neighbor. Loving our neighbors is loving those mothers who have aborted their children. In a congregation this size, it's very likely that there are four, between two and four women who have committed this abortion process who've committed it who've done it you say not in our church yeah yep in our church because people who get abortions are like you and like me and they're hiding that sin because they know you will reject them or they fear that you will reject them what we should be communicating to them is that we love you. What happened to you was not good. What you chose to do was not good. But a lot of good can come from it. 
Because God never fails to complete His purposes. And He has purpose for you. And we love you. This one is tough. And it will anger some of you. But loving our neighbor is loving abortionists. And those who support legalized abortion in this country. Jesus not only said that we should love our neighbor, but that we should love our enemy. And you may view them as your enemy. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus says they're your neighbor, and it doesn't change the fact that you should love them. How do we love them? By praying for them. By praying for them. By warning them with the gospel. You're headed down a path of destruction. Can you not see it? Do you not feel it? You're running from God in this practice. You're blaspheming His name. He is keeping record of this wrong. And He's the Father of all these children that you're murdering. And I don't know about you, but if somebody murdered my child, I'd want righteous justice on their behalf. And so, repentance is required. And the gospel is unchanged. And we should be preaching the gospel rather than simply, again, attacking these people. It's easy to attack them. It's most difficult to love them. I think loving them includes praying for them, includes the gospel to them, includes even hearing them and responding to their charges with Scripture. You've got to have a conversation with them if you have opportunity. Not scream at them, but have dialogue with them. That's part of loving our neighbor. The unborn, the orphan, the mother who's contemplating abortion, the mother who has had an abortion, the doctor who's carrying out abortion. We love our neighbor by caring for people at the end of their life. James not only said love the orphan, but love the widow. And so we should love those who are at the end of their life. Have no misunderstanding at this point. Those who are radically in support of abortion rights are also radically in support of euthanasia. So if you think, well, I survived, now I'm, I'm 65. I'll never have to worry about somebody extinguishing my life. Wrong. They... Almost wholesale hold this view with euthanasia, with abortion. We should be fighting against that practice. That people are given the dignity of dying on God's terms. And that people are cared for and not treated as science experiments. 
for future generations. We should love our neighbors at the end of their lives and we should love our neighbor by giving widows. This is a very practical and last application. We should love our neighbor by giving widows and widowers significant roles in our community. Not just saying, oh, there's old so-and-so. I'm not going to name anybody. He's a good old guy. He had a good life. Speaking of him in past tense, you ever catch that? A guy hits 65, 70, 75, 80, everybody's got their line. You know, the older you get, the further the line moves up. But we start talking about those who are still living and breathing and moving among us as if they're past tense. Don't we? That's not a culture of life. We've started buying in mentally to this idea that they're worthless. They're not worthless. They are purposefully left for our help and our guidance. They're elders among us. Practically, how in the world will we do these things at a church like Grace Fellowship? And We have vision here, not just me, but the church has vision here of orphan care, obviously, and I've let you in on a little of that. And I have great desire that we care for widows and widowers in the future. I envision a world here, a Grace Fellowship world, a community where we have elders living in on our property caring for practical needs in our church and practical needs in our orphanage, hopefully, by God's will. I see a vibrant community on this acreage of people at the beginning of their life and the end of their life, serving the living God. And I think that we then have, with that vision, the responsibility to begin living it out today. Let's don't get caught in the loop of, well, one day we're going to do this and one day we're going to do that. We'll all die not having done any of it. Let's get caught up in thoughts of who our God is, living it out, fleshed out among the people of this community so that it is a city set on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden, that preaches the gospel to the world. Everyone has purpose and value, whether they're the youngest or the oldest. No matter their race, no matter their creed, no matter their intelligence, no matter their wealth, they all have purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we come to the end.